Anyway, if you have your Bibles, please join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul wrote, if, if, there was two, if there were two books of the Bible in the New Testament, the two books that I would choose would be Romans and Galatians. Both of those books are, I think, critical, critical to the Christian faith. And in particular, Romans. Romans lays out a bunch of things. And what we're looking at here this morning is more theological. But it's an important theological position that we need to look at. And I want to address the issue of righteousness. Uh, a lot of people get this, I think, confused. Uh, righteousness is a position rather than something that we strive for. And as I unpack this, maybe you'll see where I'm going with it. But so Paul wrote the book of Romans, basically the first three chapters, if I could summarize them, it is basically that everybody is guilty. We're guilty of sin against God, and therefore we have a problem. And the problem is the issue of righteousness. How does one become righteous? How does one become in a right standing with God? Is it based on something that we do, or is it based on something that we don't do? And uh, I, I hope this is beneficial to you, and so let's launch right in. First of all, Paul talks about the gift. Now, in the Old Testament, and again, we'll get into this in just a few minutes, but uh, the way that people in the Old Testament lived, they lived under the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, called the Torah. Uh, it depends on uh, your verbalization of which one you want. But Paul writes this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Let me read that again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested apart from the law. This righteousness that Paul is talking about here is one that is put right or in a right standing with God. Notice the text does not say this. But now the righteousness that we produce puts us in a right relationship with God. This is a righteousness of God. This is a righteousness that uh, will match God's righteousness and his holiness. So this is, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The word there manifested simply means something that has been made fully known. In the Old Testament, it was cloaked under the issue of the law. And you go in and you read Galatians and you find out that uh, there were people in Galatia, Jews, trying to say that in order to be a good Christian, you have to be circumcised and you have to come under the law of Moses. And it's fine to accept Christ, but there's something else by which you have to follow. And Paul nixes that idea and says it is impossible and he says it in Romans too. It is impossible to be under law and under Christ at the same time. So this is a righteousness that has uh, 
implications for our lives as we go forward in our saved condition. It is apart from the law. This is widely uh, understood, at least in theological circles, horeses. Horeses means without the law. So if I were to read this, but now the righteousness of, of God has been manifested without the law. You think about uh, Moses. And let me, let me say this, there's, the law is holy. God gave Moses the law, and therefore what God wrote in the law is holy. Most of us think, well, it's the Ten Commandments. No, uh, the law actually starts in Exodus chapter 19 and goes all the way to Exodus chapter 32. There's over 700 laws in the Torah, and you were expected to live by them. And yet, when we fast forward to the New Testament, we find that Paul, talking to the Jewish congregation, if you will, says that the law, in Galatians, that the law was our tutor, our teacher, to lead us to the cross. The whole world stands condemned before God. There's not one person in this room that can, myself included, that can produce a righteousness so effective that I'm able to get into the kingdom of God. I, I do not possess that. You do not possess that. Nobody possesses that. So we have a problem. We have a serious problem. Douglas Moo writes it this way in his commentary, but now God has intervened to inaugurate a new era and all who have responded by faith be transferred will be transferred into the into it from the old era no wonder lloyd jones the prince of expositors wrote this there are no more words beautiful in the whole of scripture than just these two words but now god very very important that we understand the significance of but now the righteousness of God has been manifested without the law. And there is a sense in which, and I said this before and I'll say it again, the law is holy because it was given by a holy God. The problem was that nobody can match or equal that within their own strength. You cannot do it. And I've heard people say, well, I'm going to get into heaven because my good outweighs my bad. The problem is your good is still not good enough. You cannot possibly come to a place in your life where you reach a state of sinless perfection. So that leaves us with a problem. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah wrote this. He wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the northern and southern kingdoms. But this covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Old Testament realized that it was impossible to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. And so, for that purpose, God spoke to Jeremiah, and on his heart he wrote, you know what, there's coming a day when this law that is external 
is going to come internal. I would also argue that every law, the majority of the laws dealing with our relationship with God are living in us already. And that is something that is unbelievable. And you think about Jeremiah writing this and the people going, what? The law's going to be in our hearts. How's that going to happen? Well, they didn't get to see it, but we do. So now the question is, if it's not by law, and you'd be amazed what people think on the highways and byways of life about how they get to heaven. It's quite amazing. Most of them think because they're a good person, they're going to get in and they don't need to do anything else. And we've got to, as believers, share our faith. We've got to share our faith with people that are lost. And I don't mean cram it down their throats. I mean love them. Love them. So if it's not by law, then what is it about? Well, it's about faith. It's about faith. And notice in verse 22a, the righteousness of God, again, of God. This is God's righteousness. This is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Dekinosiene, that's the word for righteousness, which means to be put right with God. The, think of it this way. Over here you have your righteousness which fails miserably, but over here God's going to offer us righteousness that's going to put us right with him and put us in a right position. This righteousness is positional. It's not something that we strive for, that we seek for, that we work for. This, this is positional righteousness in which the, the righteousness of God comes down and it was put on Jesus Christ on the cross. And then when he rose, we're going to get into this in a minute, but he rose again and he reigns at the right hand of the Father, sends the Holy Spirit into your heart. You are positionally righteous with God. And guess what? You never lose that position. I've met Christians that say, well, now that you're saved, you need to toe the line. Well, I understand the mindset behind that. That is, you don't exchange the righteousness of God and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to go on and live my life the way I want to. That's not true salvation. I'm sorry. That is not salvation. Salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in our hearts, and yes, of course, we seek to live for him. We love him. We want to follow him. We want to do what he tells us to do. But if there's none of that, if there's none of that, and it's all about, I've trusted in Christ, now I'm going to live how I want to live. i got to question that. I'm sorry, i got to question it. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in, he radically changes that heart. Not, it takes time, I get that. But this is, this is so important. This is why I'm so fired up this morning. The righteousness of God through faith, pistis. That means someone in whom complete confidence can be placed. That's what faith is. I'm reading right from the Greek. Someone in whom complete confidence can be placed. So when we talk about trusting in Christ, what are we talking about? Are we talking about um, his death on the cross? Is that what we're talking about? 
or are we talking about something else? Well, let me give you some thoughts here. I'm going to do it by pictures. So the first picture is the belief in the virgin birth. Very miraculous. That God, Jesus Christ, left his throne in heaven, came to this earth, was born, God impregnated Mary, and it was a supernatural, and, and when you think about it, this is a foreshadowing of what it means to be saved. The Holy Spirit comes in us and gives us a rebirth. So Jesus now, uh, he's going to grow up, he's going to live his life, but he's going to do it in such a way, in such a way that it's going to be perfect. Let me say this, Jesus never broke one single law that God spoke, thought, never broke any of it. He lived the Old Testament law perfectly. Why did he do that? Because we can't. I bet you you broke 10 laws already this week. I might have broken 15, I don't know, I bet. We also have to, so Jesus lived among us, we beheld his glory. Also believe in the miracles of Christ. You know when Jesus was here, he did so many miracles and people followed him because they couldn't believe that this man could do these miracles. I, I went back through just kind of a smorgasbord, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind man, causing the lame to walk, raising people from the dead. Where did he get that power? He got that power because he is God. He is God. And therefore, we know that when we trust in Christ, we are trusting in the one that can care for us, take care of us, break, cause us to be raised from the dead when we die to go be with him. You've got to believe in the power of Christ. And how often do we even think about that in our own lives, that he gives us the power to live this? You cannot, cannot, cannot live this life on your own. It has to be through the power of Christ. Absolutely. Hmm. Quite amazing. But then we have to believe in the death of Christ. Paul writes it this way in Romans, that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. Think about that. He who knew no sin became sin for you and me. And the wrath of God was being poured out on Christ and he was dying on that cross. You know what? I had a deacon in a Southern Baptist church tell me one time and it, I don't know, I guess there's a righteous anger and then there's maybe overboard. He told me in front of people, I, I was shocked. This guy's been in the church for years. He said, I'm not just trusting on what Christ did for me. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I am trusting only in what Jesus Christ did for me. I bring nothing of value to the table except my soul that he wants to redeem. Wow. Where do people get this stuff? 
I am thankful I've got deacons that, that know this. <laughs> we also have to trust in the resurrection. Let me say this. Without the resurrection, you may as well go to the house. Because what I'm doing here every Sunday morning, forget it. Go. Jesus rose from the dead. When I was at uh, Florida State, uh, I, I took a summer course on uh, ancient history. I probably shared this before. Bear with me. This professor, I had to have this course. Let's just put it, I was with lost people. He was going through the life of Jesus. And I was like, wow, this professor gets it. I think he's saved. And at the end of it, he goes, and of course, you know, Jesus was a good guy. I said, what you call a good guy, I call my savior. Oh, there's one more thing we got to believe in. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, the right hand is a position of power and authority. And did you know from 1 John that he makes intercession for you and me? We have an advocate. Praise God, right? And when we trust in Christ by faith, every aspect of who he was, when we trust in that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, it radically changes your life. Maybe this morning we need to go back and fall in love with our salvation. Maybe that'll juice us up. Maybe that'll get us going again. But this righteousness that's a gift, oh, I got all fired up now. I'm really ready to roll. It's needed for everybody. It's needed for everybody. For there is no distinction. You have to look at the context a little bit, Jew and Gentile. The, Gen the Jews thought the only reason God in, uh, created Gentiles was to keep the fires of hell burning. They saw themselves as superior. In fact, you see this play out in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, Paul was a Hebrew above Hebrews. He knew everything. He was the right guy. Paul was the right guy for God to send to the Gentiles. And he also had to talk to the Jews and said, look, you guys need to, you need to pry your fingers off this law because Christ already fulfilled that. Go back and read Hebrews. It's all through there as well. There is no distinction. Look, you can be poor, you can be rich, you can be black, you can be white, you can be Asian, you can be barbarian, you can be Greek, you can be whatever it is. God doesn't make distinctions. No ground is higher for anybody else. Doesn't matter about your social, economic status. Doesn't matter about any of that. God sees everybody the same. And I'll say this, God wants everybody to be saved. You all know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, 
and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me say this. If there's a lost person in your life this morning and you think there's absolutely no way that person can be saved. Look at who's writing this letter. Do you know Paul was killing Christians and God saved him? There's lost people in my life and we tend to think, well, you know, they're never going to get saved. Pray for them. Pray for them. But they, it, it really doesn't matter to God about your life. And when you think about Jesus' life, you think about, you know who really rejected Jesus? The religious elite. Do you know who was really receptive to Jesus? The poor and the broken. It doesn't matter your skin color, your economic status, your social status, doesn't matter to God. There is no distinction. God doesn't play favorites. Bo and Crude and I are right in their commentary. Paul introduced, he really does, just short circuits the Jews all over the place. I can see their heads exploding. Paul introduces a thought so contrary to Jewish and Gentile sensibilities as to be scandalous. An example of a clash of kingdoms at its best. The idea that the wicked could be justified freely was unheard of, not only in Rome, but in Israel. Paul, the Jew, would argue, are you telling me that these Gentiles can be saved? Yep. And you think about how the Jews, which they are God's chosen people, and we should always be on the side of Israel, always. But you can, you can think about this. The Jews saw themselves as superior. And so Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. You got to come the same way that the Gentiles do. Bowen Crudenider's absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> think about it. Listen, God sees all people as the same. What's the difference between one lost person and another lost person? They're lost. And why do you think God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to pay for their sin. And so we can go out and tell the world that Jesus loves you and cares for you and wants you to be saved. And ultimately, this is, this is God's deal. This is God's thing. I don't know about you all, but I really sense God this morning here. Um, this is, this is not about me. This is not about you. This is about him. It's his righteousness or you don't get in. For all have sinned. Harmartano, harmartano. To engage in wrongdoing. From the moment you're born, you are born into sin. 
you can look at this and see it really easy in kids. How many of your kids did exactly everything that you told them to do? Summer Lee, when she was about this big, she was starting to walk and she would go around the house and go, no, 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 because <laughs> we told her no, no so many times because she was getting into trouble. It was really quite funny. No, no, I still remember it. No, no, she had that pacifier in her mouth and she's going at it. No, no, no. I, I said pause here and make a little joke, so. Wherefore, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, just a couple chapters over. Wherefore, as one man sinned, enter into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So it started way back in Genesis. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were sent outside the Garden of Eden, the fall of man has been all the way from that time on. So Ephesians chapter 1 says he foreknew, meaning God was already... See, this is a difficult thing about God. God's really not on the same timetable we are. So when man fell, God already knew that. And it says before the foundations of the world, in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, he chose us in him. So that means every believer, God, God knows. Well, who gets in? I don't know. I can tell you this, though. If you trust in Jesus Christ by faith, you're in. That's the standard. For all have sinned. There has to be conviction. There has to be conviction. The day that I trusted in Christ and the army chaplain led me in the sinner's prayer, I knew it was right. And then the chaplain, and I do this every time. I know the Tabers are camping this weekend, but I made each one of those kids that Mike Tabor and I prayed with them to receive Christ, I made them write Actually, I wrote the date and the time that they trusted in Christ because the army chaplain made me write the date and the time. October 12th, 1981 was the day that I trusted in Christ. And I never forget that. I still see the little chapel. It was smaller than this, our sanctuary. And he explained to me, if that screen up there, what do you think God would see? And I, th I said, well, I think he's, I'm a good guy. No, now I was not a good guy. Not in a reference to God being holy and righteous. After I trusted in Christ, Chaplain Burlingame, that was his name, and actually back when we lived in Ohio, uh, Audrey found him, and I got to talk with him about that salvation. He said, I remember that. He had me look back up at the screen and he said, what do you think God sees now? And I said, I don't know. And he said, that screen's white. What is that? That's the righteousness of God. Clean. 
Okay. The consequence here is in 23b. Bear with me, I've got about 10 minutes left. And fall short of the glory of God, who stereo, to fall short, means to fail to obtain a standard. So everybody in this world has failed to attain what? They have failed to attain the righteousness of God. To get into heaven, your righteousness has to equal that of God. Who is Jesus? He's God. Jesus, several occasions, to see me is to see the Father. Hello, I'm God incarnate. I'm going to go to the cross and, you know, we like to pick on the disciples, but we would have been in the same boat. What do you mean where you're going, I can't go? We would have been in the same boat. There's nothing superior about us except we have a Bible now. Anyway. And fall short of the glory of God. That is to fail to abstain, to obtain the standard of the righteousness of God. But God gives us the righteousness in Christ. Again, nothing that I do. There was nothing I could bring to the table. And guess what? There's nothing you can bring to the table. You are ultimately dependent upon Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Martin Luther said, there I stand, I can do no other. Yeah. The glory of God, the doxa theos in the Greek language, means splendor or brilliance or perfection of theos, the creator of the universe. <laughs> so we can't get there. Syntactically, I think there's good evidence when Paul talks about syntactically and also genre of words that we're talking about. I think there's good evidence that Paul is using this metaphor for falling short. You take a bow and arrow in archery because this word fall short demonstrates the use of this word. You shoot it and you have to hit a bullseye every single time. How many of you can do it? I know one that can. His name's Jesus Christ and he came to the world to pay for your sin and make you totally righteous before God. All of us. So that's the problem. God offers a gift of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. And it's needed by everyone. And it was paid for by Christ. And it was paid for by Christ. Notice he says here, and are justified by his grace as a gift. How much simpler can Paul write it? Justified, dikaio means to put right and total acquittal. I love this word justified. Paul uses it 20, eh, my memory's going on me now, but 20 sometimes. Um, this is a legal term. This is a legal term. I want you to think of a jury. 
This lady's not buying it, I don't think. This lady on the <laughs> lady on the end. Just a second. I actually have coffee this morning. This keeps me up. Think of it this way. You're on trial. And you have your lawyer. And then there's... Uh, you're, you're the defendant, and then there's the prosecutor. The prosecutor lays out the case. Your defense attorney lays out his case. This jury goes in, and they deliberate. By the way, have you ever seen the movie 12 Angry Men? That's a pretty good movie, classic movie. But anyway, it's beside the point. The jury comes back in. When the jury comes in, the judge goes, have, has the jury reached a verdict? And the foreman stands up and says, we have your honor. The defendant stands, the prosecutor stands, they look at the jury, and the judge says, what say you? We find the defendant not guilty. Exactly this word, justified. It's not just as if you never sinned. You are totally acquitted. All charges dropped. In our system, you cannot be tried again once you have been found innocent. It's called double jeopardy. It doesn't work, and it doesn't work with this. So when you trust in Christ, you are totally acquitted, done, finished, based on his work. Based on his work. This is not about us. This is about him. And to be justified means that you know that you've fallen short of the glory of God and you need some way of getting right with God. And God says, you know what, son? I want you to go and I'm going to have you pay for the sins of the world. And God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross. He died. Satan thought he won. He didn't. Christ rose from the dead. He reigns at the right hand of the Father. And someday he'll come back and get us. Or we'll go to be with him. Charis is the Greek word here, means loving kindness. Dorian is the word gift without cost. You cannot buy your way into heaven. It's a gift. It is a gift. And God's grace always goes with you the rest of your life. Stop letting Satan get you to believe that the sins that you committed before Christ, you still have to pay for. You do not, do not have to pay for those sins because they have been paid for by Christ. It is done. I don't care what you've done in your past life. When you trust in Christ, it's done. It's gone. It's finished. He doesn't remember it. And therefore, you can stand before God and you go, Mercy. The mercy of God. You wouldn't believe the stuff I've had to deal with as a pastor for 34 years. Over bad decisions that people made in the past. And I, and I, I, I take them back and I say, look, have you trusted in Christ? Yes. You need to let that go. Satan wants that in your life to hinder your walk with God. Let go of it. It is done. It is finished. It is forgotten. As far as the east is from the west, it has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. You may have done something in your past life. I don't care what it is. 
when you trust in Christ, it's forgiven. It is done. Don't you think Satan would love you to be worried, 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 and live your life in fear? Let Christ set you free. Let Christ set you free. It is through the redemption that is in Christ, Paul continues. Apolutrosis. Some of these words are really funny. Redemption. You know what that word means, redemption? It means to be set free. You're free. Paul's trying to say this in numerous ways. You don't bear that. Christ did. And it's done. I think whatever I had for breakfast, I'm going to have it again next week. <laughs> Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Listen, listen, please listen. And I love you guys and gals. You don't bear the past Live in the present. Let the past go. And it's difficult. I understand that. But Christ set you free so you don't have to live like this. In this case, the Jews, Paul's talking about, you keep going back to the law, but Christ has already set you free from that. You fulfilled every jot tittle of the law. It's done. Be free. Be free. It can't leave yet, but be free. Go out. Has this helped you guys and gals? One of the, every sermon should be some help to the congregation. Now, the cost, the cost, this righteousness, uh, this, this righteousness, this redemption which set us free, which is literally the word set free, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There it is. Helisterion, helisterion. The means of forgiveness is the propitiation. That's just a fancy word to say that you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Don't live defeated. Yes, you follow Christ. You try to obey his teachings. But brothers and sisters, you're free. Jesus died on that cross to give you freedom. He died on that cross. This was to show. Here it is. This was to, this verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Ladies, I know you're going to go, oh. Jesus for better or worse, understanding in 
the Jewish culture, Jesus was the Passover sacrifice. Do you remember back when the Israelites, when God said, put blood over the doorpost? What do you think Jesus was doing on the cross? It's the same thing. Death will pass you by. You may die physically, but I can tell you this, you won't die spiritually. He did it for us. Did you go to the cross? Mm -mm. He did. He went to the cross. Paul concludes with this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might, listen, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me close with this. We're put right with God by faith, not by what we do. Secondly, everybody has sinned and therefore qualifies for salvation. The lost world needs Jesus. I know many of you are worried about the culture in which we live. We need to be out there telling people about Christ. Christ's death on the cross was accepted by God as payment in full. And when you trust in him, your past life is gone. You now you now stand positionally righteous before God. Not by what you did or I did, but what he did. And I would say, live your life this week in full assurance that you trusted in him, it's done, it's finished, you're sealed until the day of redemption.